Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, everybody. Uh, on behalf of the Islamic Society of Britain uh, and ISB campus, I would like to welcome you all to our December masterclass towards greater understanding a Shia Sunni dialogue. Uh, my name is Ali Drabu. Um, I've been a member of the ISB campus for the last five years, and I will be chairing the events today, inshallah. We've got a really interesting discussion um, planned for today. And with some brilliant speakers. And it is my sincere hope um, that we are all able to take away some valuable lessons from today. Um, before I hand over to our panel, um, I would just like to tell you a bit more about uh, ISB campus and some of the wonderful events that we have coming up, inshallah. So ISB is a family-based organization and a community-based charity. Uh, and ISB campus is a space for 17 to 26 year olds where we have masterclasses and educational workshops on a variety of different issues, some of which are very, very relevant um, to that particular age group. As I mentioned, I myself has been a member of the campus, um, and it's fair to say that I've learned so much um, through the masterclasses and through the events that have been put on. Um, and if you'd like to be informed about any of the future events and masterclasses that we have, um, please use the link uh, which will be posted in the chat of this masterclass uh, to join the WhatsApp group um, to keep up to date uh, with all current and future events that are being planned. Um, just a couple of dates that I would uh, like to share with you all to keep in mind. Uh, bear with me while I just initiate my screen share. So on the 30th of December, we have uh, our e-circle uh, with Dr. Rizwan Sayed. Um, and this will be a continuation of the previous e-circle e discussing the topic of uh, Islam and slavery. And the e-circles are bi-weekly and cover some very, very interesting topics. Uh, and we hope that would be a very, very interesting um, e-circle. And we hope to see many of you there. Um, the second day, um, which uh, I would like you all to keep in mind. So on the 2nd of January, uh, we have our Praying in the Pandemic event. And this is uh, an event to reflect on the year that we've had and to look forward to the coming year ahead. Um, an evening of Quran recitation, dhikr, reminders, and spiritual reflections to pray for those we have lost, to pray for ourselves. And that will be on Saturday, the 2nd of January at 10 p.m. Um, and we hope to see many of you there. So before I just hand over to our wonderful panel who we have today, um, I'd like to just kind of give a bit of background to the event and what we're going to be discussing today. Um, today's discussion on, on Shia Sunni dialogue is one that has a religious, historical, and geopolitical um, significance. It's a topic that in certain spaces has been very difficult to navigate. Um, and has been challenging for some to actually discuss in open environments. But fundamentally, what we hope for today is that what we're able to do is lay the foundations to appreciate the differences, um, to build a better understanding, so that fundamentally we are able to unite over the differences and come together as one. Um, today's event will be structured as follows. Uh, firstly, we'll be discussing the theological narratives, um, and then we'll be moving on to uh, discussing a socio-historical uh, analysis, and then finally, um, 
some of the grassroots work that's being undertaken. And without further ado, I'd like to hand over to our first speaker, uh, Dilwar Hussain. Uh, thank you, Ali. Thank you, everybody. It's an honor to be on this panel. And I'd really like, like to thank the Islamic Society of Britain for hosting this very important uh, conversation. Um, I think topics such as this are really valuable and, and, and necessary in our, in our time today, especially when we, we live in a society where Muslims as a whole are only about 5% of the population of this country. And it's really important that we get to understand the diversity within the Muslim community, because at the end of the day, our numbers are not huge. And I think it's, it's therefore, it's imperative anyway, but it's imperative in this sort of context that we understand each other better. Um, so I'm gonna speak, we've been asked to speak for six minutes each in this first round. Um, and I'm just gonna take a, a few minutes just to talk about some of the, I, I guess really just start framing the conversation rather than going to the details yet, because I know Mathia will look at some of the specifics um, and start to explain some of the areas where there are theological and religious similarities and differences. But I wanna give you five very quick points it, that will help us to start the conversation, help us to get into this topic and, and allow us to frame how we think about it. So number one, we're trying to build understanding. And understanding is really important. Um, and it's important because there's a, the, one of my most favorite sayings that um, comes from, it's an author of, the, of one of the companions who's talking about the teachings of the prophet. And he's saying, shall I tell you what is better than prayer and charity? It is mending discord between people. So here this companion is, and this is recorded in the books of, I think it's in, in the Muatta of Imam Malik, saying that something that is even better than prayer and charity, and that is mending the tensions and the discord that people have between themselves, i.e. developing and building understanding between people. Number two, I I'd like us to approach this with humility. I think each of us needs to look at this and look at our own religion, look at our own religious teachings with a really strong dose of humility, not, not presume that we understand everything, that we have the whole of the truth, because we know that when we, even though we may agree that we are on the truth, we know that the truth of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is infinite. And can any one human mind encapsulate the whole of the infinite? No, it can't. So all we will ever do is approximate to some parts of the truth, and that's why we believe that while we can argue forcefully for our own um, beliefs and our own ideas, that others out there will also have some of the truth. And there may be things where we are wrong and there may be things that they are right. And I think it's important that we approach this with, with humility. And this is the way, this is the sunnah, if you like, of our early scholars and the earlier generations of Muslims. Number three, um, I think we need to have a real sense of empathy for all of those other differences, other schools of thought around us. And there are many, many, and we're looking at the Shia and the Sunni schools here, but there are many different schools of thought. I think empathy is really important. Something that really struck me when I started thinking about this and when I started talking to friends of Shia background, you know, we, I mean, I come from a Sunni heritage, from, from a Sunni background, although it's not really as important to me anymore as it perhaps used to be many years ago. Um, 
but we are, we have this narrative of what happened at, at, the, at the time of the death of the Prophet and how the companions were trying to find somebody to lead the community and so on. And I think if you look at the Sunni narrative of this, of what happened as the Prophet had passed away and the debates that were there about leading the community and then who came next. And as we know, Abu Bakr was, was selected uh, by the community. I think if you put yourselves in the foot of the family, in the feet of the family of the Prophet uh, if you put yourselves in their shoes and you think that not only has a prophet of God died, that a leader of a community died, but one of your relatives has passed away, that somebody from your family has passed away. And as a member of the family, you are busy trying to find out how to bury this person. What do you do? All of the trauma that you know any of us who have, who have gone through the, 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 the bereavement of a very, very close relative will know and understand. And it's at that time that all everybody else is thinking about who should succeed and who should lead and who should take over the Muslim community and who should, understandable reasons. But I think it's important to understand where the Ahlul Bayt are in that particular context. And that's what I mean by empathy. We've got to be able to step outside of our comfort zones outside of our experience base and try to see the world from the eyes of other people. And the two, the two final quick points as my six minutes are nearly over. Number four, respect. Yes, you know, there are differences. We understand that there are differences between Shia and Sunni. And in the past, some of those differences have been quite serious, um, you know, in terms of the political implications that they've had. We'll also in the next segment come on to look at how those differences have an impact on us today. But we've got to speak about these differences with respect. And we've got to appreciate that among Sunnis, there are differences. Among Shia, there are differences. There are different, many, many different schools of thought, even within any of these schools. So are the, is the breadth of the difference between the Shia and the Sunni so large that that difference isn't already there amongst the Sunni or amongst other Shia groups? So let's, let's, you know, have respect for each other. And finally, let's pledge to educate ourselves because where we don't understand something, where we have lack of knowledge, we've got to bring knowledge to that, um, to that scenario. That's the only way we will go forward by learning. And I hope that today's session will be an inspiration to people to go further, go out and learn further about these issues. Thank you, Ali. Thank you so much, uh, it was really interesting to get those perspectives. Um, and, you know, uh, just to tell you a bit about um, Dilwa Hussain, he's the chair of New Horizons in British Islam, an assistant professor at Coventry University, um, whose, research, whose research interests are in Islam and the modern world and Muslim identity and reform. So thank you so much um, for giving your really interesting insights. I'd now like to hand over to uh, Sister Mahdia Abdul Hussain, um, who has a background in Islamic jurisprudence um, and an LLM in medical law. Uh, she conducted her research on organ donation in uh, Shia jurisprudence, gaining an MRS from uh, Royal Holloway. And she's currently a faculty, faculty member at the Al Mahdi Institute, teaching theology, legal theory, and jurisprudence, and coordinating the Institute's research activities. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'd like to hand over to you now. Thank you for that introduction. 
Um, just before I begin in what I had to talk about, which was the theological similarities and differences, I wanted to just add on to what Dilbert put so beautifully, which is that these differences exist within the Shias and within the Sunnis as well. There's a hadith from the Prophet, I'm not sure if it's also within the um, Sunni hadith or not, which says that the Prophet said to one of his companions, if you knew what was in the heart of another one of my companions, you would actually think that he was a kafir. And what that meant was that each one of our conceptions of God and conceptions of religion is so vastly different that sometimes we can't understand it. And, and yet at the same time, it's all encompassed within Islam. And it's all, and they were both like two highly respected companions of the prophet. So these differences, they're not as big as sometimes we make them out to be because they're a part and parcel of human existence and they will always be there. And the aim is never to diminish these differences because that is an impossibility. Um, just to now go into my topic, which is the theological similarities and differences. When we talk about theology, what we mean is the fundamental beliefs that are needed to subscribe to a particular religion. Now, when we talk about the theology of Islam, that's actually the same between Shias and between Sunnis. There's no difference there. What is needed, the primary beliefs or the fundamental beliefs are the beliefs in the oneness of God, the belief in the Prophet Muhammad and the belief in the final day. So the main things are actually the similarities between the Shias and the Sunnis. Where there is a um, difference or the main difference comes with regards to successor successorship of the Prophet. So everybody agrees that the Prophet Muhammad was the final Prophet, but the differences stem from who succeeded the Prophet and who ought to succeed the Prophet. Um, and Muslims agreed after the Prophet that the Ummah did need a leader and they needed someone to continue to guide the Muslim Ummah, but they disagreed on who that ought to be. And this is like a very rudimentary explanation. Um, and I know that there's a lot more complexity involved, but the split was regarding whether the leader ought to be the Caliph Abu Bakr who the Sunnis now take as the four caliphs. So Khalif Abu Bakr, Khalif Umar, Khalif Uthman, and then Khalif Ali, who is the first Imam of the Shias. According to the Sunni view, the Prophet didn't appoint anyone after him. And because he didn't appoint anyone after him, it was left to the Muslim Ummah to decide who they ought to have. And then they decided, or some of the tribal leaders decided that the Caliph Abu Bakr was the best place to be the first successor of the Prophet. And he was one of the close companions of the Prophet. So he seemed to be a natural choice. Um, on the other hand, the Shi'i view is that the successor has to be based on divine revelation. So it's decided by God who the, um, who the next successor is. And then the prophet wouldn't have left such a great leader, wouldn't have left his ummah without appointing another leader, knowing the trials that would face the ummah and knowing that the sort of the fighting that may come. So he would have then appointed a leader and they believe that he did in the incident that is known as Gadir, where he said, whoever's master I am, the Ali is his master. This is in 
both Sunni and Shia traditions, but there's differences in interpretation of what that actually means and whether that means he's the next leader or not. Um, yeah. So the Shi idea is that at every time, because of the grace of God, there has to be a leader who is appointed by God to guide human beings and to guide the Muslims. And that this person, like the prophet, has to be free from any kind of error or making any kind of mistakes, because if they were to make mistakes, they wouldn't be able to discharge their duties as a leader. Um, this is known as fall fall infallibility, and it's also a point of difference between Shias and Sunnis, who Sunnis who will say that actually the, even the Prophet didn't need to be infallible, so he could have made some mistakes, not sinned, anything like that, but could have made mistakes. And this is, again, based on the Quranic verse where the Prophet says, or Allah says to the Prophet, to say, say, O Muhammad, I am only a man like you. Um, yeah. And the final point is about the Mahdi, which is the coming of a savior or the coming of somebody who is going to fill the earth with justice and um, give Islam its proper place in the world. All Muslims agree that there is a Mahdi or someone who is coming because it's found in the texts of both the Shia and the Sunni. But the difference is, whereas the Sunnis believe that it is somebody who has not been born yet and it's somebody who will be born, and will come, although the prophet said it's from my family, so someone from his lineage, it's somebody who will come, whereas the Shia are of the opinion that he was already born, and he's actually the 12th Imam who is in occultation, which means that he's in hiding and he's waiting for the appropriate time to um, announce himself or to come. Uh, yeah, and the perp and he guides people like the prophet Khidr, who lives amongst people, but they didn't know him, they couldn't see him, but he's still guiding them. And the analogy they usually give is the one of the sun behind the cloud. So even though you can't see, when you can't see the sun, it still has a profound impact. Uh, I think those are the major differences without making things very complicated. So, yeah. Thank you so much, um, Sister Mahathir. Really interesting um, perspectives there. Um, I'd just like to remind uh, all the attendees that we are actually uh, taking some questions uh, and that we will have um, a short amount of time at the end for Q&A. So please do submit um, some questions and we hope to get through as many as possible. Um, so I'd now like to move on to the second section, which is to have a socio-historical analysis um, of this particular topic. And I'd like to hand back to Matthew to start this section. Yeah, so this was a really broad topic, socio-historic global analysis. So I was going to stick with the historical analysis of what happened after the death of the prophet and certain conflicts that happened between some of the companions of the prophet and the family of the prophet and the implications that they've had and how best do you go forward or how do you resolve um, resolve how we talk about this or how do you minimize the conflict? and create unity through them. So after the death of the prophet, because of um, the disputes amongst disputes about successorship, there were disputes for the first time amongst the Muslims. 
Um, and some of the, like, just to mention the main sort of events, the Battle of Jamal, or known as the Battle of Camel, was the first, it's known as the first fitna in the Muslim Ummah, so the first real discord within the Muslims. And that was between, it occurred after the death of the third caliph, who was Caliph Umar, and it happened between Lady Aisha, who was the widow of the Prophet, and Caliph Imam Ali, Caliph Ali or Imam Ali for the Shias, who was the Caliph at that time, and he was the cousin of the Prophet. So this was the first time that the Muslim Ummah had seen the closest companions of the Prophet fight between themselves. Um, and it had very long and lasting implications for the Muslim Ummah. And it was after this event that it first came where people actually started to have labels of oh, either being the follower of Ali or the follower of, of Uthman. Um, and so this was an event that has one of the events that's had very lasting implications. And we see that it was a source of discord. But what did happen after it, which often isn't mentioned, is that after um, that they actually resolved their issue after that. And Imam Ali had actually said that this is the wife and the, the wife of the prophet and the mother of the believers. So there is no discord between us. And so they continue to work together after that. And even between the first three caliphs and between Imam Ali, they actually had working relations and they continued to work. So even when Uthman's palace was under siege, at one point it was, Imam Ali had sent his sons to go and protect him. So these are the kind of things that we often don't hear that actually there was a really good working relationship between the family of the prophet and the companions of the prophet. Um, as for like what have been the implications of this, we see that they've had two, well, in my experience, I see two type of trends. And one is people who very sincerely want to work for unity. And that's obviously a very lofty goal. But what sometimes happens is when you want to work for unity, you don't address the issues that happen and the issue, the conflicts that happened. And when you ignore that, it doesn't just go away, it just comes out in a worse way. And then the other trend is when people do have this dialogue and they do want to debate each other, and that comes out very aggressively. And the sort of the aim of this is, and I think you might even have seen this where they're like, you know, Shia and Sunni debates and stuff. And the aim of that really is just to prove that you're right and prove the other person is wrong. And that happens a lot as well. And what happens there is that a lot of the time it's not scholarly, it's just to win an argument. And when it's done to win an argument, it's not based on historical sources, it's not very scholarly, it's just based on trying to make people emotional and trying to get them on your side. Um, so now, how do we not how do we resolve this, but what is the befitting way for Muslims to move forward? Or what is the befitting way for Muslims to work together? And I wanted to introduce the work of the Center for Intra-Muslim Studies. So it's known as SIMS. So if you just go into our website, which is on Mahdi Institute, you can see the work of SIMS. And what SIMS does is that it brings together Shia and Sunni scholars to discuss issues which are very sensitive um, and have often been the source of discord, but to discuss them in a way that is respectful and harmonious. And the aim of it is actually to 
create unity between Muslims. So not to ignore the fact that these things have happened or did may have happened, but to acknowledge that they happened and then say, how do we critically discuss these things without causing offense and with our genuine um our genuine intention is actually to understand one another and when you do that you become more introspective as well so your aim there is actually to improve yourself not just to win an argument or to defeat the other person or to prove that you're right and this whole center is based on the ethos of the holy quran which says that the believers are brothers so make settlement between the brothers because this is what allah has um told us to do and also we know that there will always be differences between not only Muslims, but within sex and outside of sex and within different religions, because the Quran also says, um, we created you nations and tribes so that you may know each other. And so we recognize these differences, but we want to be able to create a platform to provide harmony and understanding. And this is one of the unique platforms that I've seen for this kind of dialogue. So. If you're interested in these sort of discussions, I would highly recommend that you go on to the Al-Mahdi Institute website and look at SIMS, so Centre for Intra-Muslim Studies, and see how they discuss it. And each, each discussion, the pan, um, with each discussion the person is chairing, will start by saying that these are the goals that we have. And it's been a really positive way to create unity whilst acknowledging that there may always be differences. I'm not sure how many minutes I've spoken to, but I think that's mostly what I wanted to say. I think you actually had, you just went under time there, but uh, no, thank you so much for the, um, for the perspectives and, you know, the, the work of Sim sounds really fascinating and, um, and genuinely very, very positive. Um, and I hope that, you know, inshallah, we get more initiatives like that, um, that actually promote that understanding. So thank you so much again um, for covering that. Um, I'd like to hand back now to Uncle Dilwar saying to continue on this particular segment. Thank you very much. Um, so, as, as Mahdi has said, this is a huge topic and, and obviously where what we're doing is we're just sort of touching on these issues and hopefully people can come back and uh, ask questions and maybe we can do other sessions where we can drill a bit deeper into, into these sorts of uh, topics. Um, I just wanted to say as a, as, a, as a brief way of introduction, I'm going to jump right from the history that Mahdi was talking about right to the contemporary time. And where we find ourselves, I think, roughly across the world and here in the UK, Shias are about 20-25%, maybe that, that sort of, we don't have accurate figures, but I think it's roughly that sort of number uh, in terms of the percentage of the Muslims here in the UK. Uh, Sunnis form again roughly the other sort of 75-80% um, ish. Um, take these figures with a pinch of salt, but I but they give you a broad sense of the proportions. Um, so if you look globally, you will find that in there are some countries in which Shia are majority, like Iran, Iraq, for example. Um, somewhere there are significant uh, minority. Um, and then some, most other places where it's the Sunnis that are the majority. Now, part of the problem of the uh, of some of those earlier tensions um, has been the way in which minorities have been persecuted in, in different parts of the world. So for example, if you look at 
the way in which in, in countries like Pakistan, for example, um, the attitudes by, by the Sunnis towards the Shias were a minority and indeed other minorities as well, uh, religious minorities, Christians, Ahmadiyya and so on. Uh, there, there are real tensions and real problems. Um, in the 60s, I, I think 60s and 70s, there were some attempts to try to bring Shia and Sunni groups together by place of institutions like Al-Azhar, which I incidentally originated under the Fatimids, which was a Shia dynasty. Um, so the, the, the original heritage of Al-Azhar University, which is one of the oldest universities uh, in, in the Muslim world, and one of the most presti prestigious, was founded under a Shia um, governance. Um, but I think really it's, it's, the, it's the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia from the sort of late 70s through the 80s and into the 90s that has marked much of the tensions in Shia and Sunni relationships uh, in the contemporary era. And being someone who's a fan of neither of those countries personally, although you know there are many good people in those places, but in terms of the regime, I, I, I don't have much positive to say about either of them. Um, but I think, unfortunately, that, that the rivalry and the geopolitics of the region has created quite a lot of tension. We can see what's going on in Yemen uh, in, in, in recent years with, with the, the drive that Saudi Arabia has to you know, indiscriminately bomb uh, Yemen and, and the, the Shia elements of uh, the Shia regions of Yemen. Again, there's a very large Shia community uh, in, in Yemen. And, and much, of the, much of that campaigning and that tension is about Saudi Arabia's internal, you know, sort of differences and, and the way that it's, it, it has a very intolerant attitude towards uh, Shia minorities within Saudi Arabia and, and around the border. Um, and Saudi Arabia has been a country that has pumped huge amounts of propaganda across the world, anti-Shia, uh, propaganda, leaflets, pamphlets, publications, sponsoring people to go around speaking against Shia uh, people and communities, debating people, the sort of unproductive things that Mahdiya was talking about earlier. Um, and no doubt when those sorts of things happen in the Muslim world, they have their consequences here. And we're going to hear more about how those consequences can be dealt with in, in, the, in the next segment where um, Mahmoud and Rahim will be speaking. But it's important to make that link and that connection that what's going on in the Muslim world, whether that's in a place like Pakistan, or because here the population of the, of the, of the Muslims here is quite heavily Pakistani based, uh, what's going on in, in places like the Middle East, uh, what's going, going on in places like Iraq, um, the, these things have real consequences for communities living here because here in the UK, we are connected to a global uh, community. Um, I wanted to finish with what I think we can learn from, just trying to finish on something positive because I've, what I've said is quite negative. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be able to visit Iran. I think it was back in 2006. Uh, and I actually went on an interfaith uh, trip uh, with some Christians uh, and uh, it was a Christian Muslim sort of uh, encounter. But while we were there, we were able to visit some of the Darul Looms, what, what, are, what, are, what Sunnis would call Darul Looms, the sort of seminaries. Um, and actually I was so impressed with the quality of the teaching, actually quite unlike many of the Sunni madrasas uh, and Darul Looms that I've been to. 
And I think there's something really important that we can learn here, that we Sunnis can learn from our Shia um, friends and, and, and brothers and sisters in terms of the way that uh, religious, just one, just one small example, and there are many others, in terms of the way that uh, scholars are trained and nurtured and taught. Um, the, the quality of the education was so high. I mean, and, and this, this goes back to a historical element around the way in which Shia um, circles and circles of knowledge have engaged with philosophy in a continuous way in a way that Sunni is actually jettisoned some time ago. So it's another, it's a different topic, but it's, I mean, again, it's another interesting topic we may want to come back to at some point. But it, it has meant that, that the two schools, the Shia and the Sunni schools, in terms of their clerics, in terms of their scholars, their imams, have actually gone in quite different, quite radically different directions. If you take an, a typical Sunni scholar today, and, you know, somebody who is your local imam down the road and they've gone through five, six, seven years of study, uh, typically something like Darsin-Nizami, which originated in the Indian subcontinent, they will have almost no philosophical training and teaching in their, in their curriculum, even though early Sunni scholars did have that. If you, if you go to um, the Shia Hausas and the, and the schools of knowledge, you will find the books of Hegel and Kant and all of the contemporary and historical philosophers there on their bookshelves, alongside Ibn Kathir and this person and that person and Ibn Taymiyyah and so on and so forth. And, it, and I found it to be a much more integrated and, and wholesome form of learning. And that's just one example of how I think we can benefit from each other and learn from each other. I'm gonna hand back, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dilwa. Uh, um, and that was a really interesting uh, section and really interesting perspectives from both speakers um, on that particular side. Uh, so moving on to our final uh, segment of this discussion, we're going to be talking about some of the grassroots activity uh, that's been taking place. Um, and with that, I'm joined by two brilliant individuals. I'd like to start with um, Sister Mahmoud Al-Qureshi. And so I'd like to hand over to you um, and to pass on to you now. Thank you, Jazakallah Ali. Um, now, in terms of my relationship with the Shia community, I've never had that as an issue at all. Um, in fact, um, when my children were young, um, they actually went to a Shia-run nursery and it was never an issue for us. We had somebody, um, we had lovely Shia family on our road and we never even thought of them as Shia or we just saw them as Muslim. And I remember at one point, um, the children were having a sleepover. And as when it was time for prayer, I said to them, guys, you guys go ahead and um, pray in Jamaat. And, um, and the children started and obviously, um, our, um, the, the person who was having a sleepover at our house, the child, um, he led the prayer according to the Shia way, uh, way of leading. And then all of a sudden I see the children coming back downstairs saying, but we don't know how to follow. He's doing it differently. So what do we do? Uh, then I realized, gosh, yeah, of course, he's, uh, he's got a different way of praying. And I said, look, you guys pray on your own um, and then we can sort this out later. But 
since then, I think since the way we've developed our relationship, I've learned to actually pray in Jamaat with our Shia brothers and sisters. Um, and, and there's not much of a difference. And I remember at a time when um, there was um, an event organized by Universal Peace Federation. Um, and at that event, the idea was to pair up two people so that they're of completely different backgrounds and get them to talk to each other and build friendship over um, uh, the whole year. Um, and I had just done my talk um, to the, the, the congregation at the time. And then when it came to the, Mus uh, the Muslims um, pairing up, all of a sudden, to me, it came across as if there's an issue between Shia and Sunni. And, and I thought, I don't have any issues with it, but I felt obliged to kind of pair up with my Shia sister. And I think I kind of had a rant with the, the organizers afterwards, but I hadn't realized how... Um, much tension there was between the Shia and Sunni at the time. Um, and obviously over time, um, um, we've learned to address some of the issues. And, and I do feel for the Shia community sometimes because they are in a minority, they feel marginalized. I do have a, um, a close friend um, in Birmingham who came up to me once and she said to me, and she was almost very emotional and tearful um, and saying, Mahmouda, why can't we do something to build a relationship between the Shia and Sunni? And by then I'd observed a few tensions that, had, that existed. And unfortunately, a lot of the time that was from the Sunni community towards the Shia community. And I was quite upset to see that, that, you know, you know, out there, people are attacking Muslims and we're attacking each other and that doesn't give us strength, does it? Um, so what we did was that we formed um, um, a WhatsApp group. And at that time I was working for Hope Not Hate and she said, please, can we think of something? We formed a WhatsApp group. We were quite selective as to who we added to that WhatsApp group. And then um, slowly we started kind of building a relationship. And from there, and I, again, I think it was a more the Shia community who were very forthcoming in terms of um, um, building and uh, reaching out to the Sunni community. So we organized street iftar together. So I tried to get different mosques to come on board. And this was a street iftar where we were aiming to uh, bring in people from um, a non-Muslim background. So it's an opportunity for people to get to know one another. Um, and that was such a huge success. We, we were expecting about 600 people to turn up and we had just under a thousand who turned up. Obviously we ran out of food, but over time we kind of built up on that relationship. And it was such that it was rewarding for us to know that yes, we're working towards that unity between ourselves. Um, and then we organized um, a program between the Ashia and Sydney brothers and sisters on Islam in the environment. And this was initiated by a local mosque um, in Birmingham. Um, and then since then we've been, um, the Shia community have been inviting us for iftars at their mosques as well. Of course, every time we, we go to the mosque, um, we always learn something new. And I think my family are often kind of coming along with me. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the time for prayers and the iftar is different, but then you just kind of, you use that as a learning process. Now, um, 
and I think from from experience, I must admit, and I have to admit that the Shia community, and I've already stated that, is that um, they're very more more forthcoming than the Sunni community are. They make more of an effort to kind of work together. Um, and I remember at one point, um, our Shia brothers and sisters were saying, "Look, you know, it's Christmas time. Um, let's all come together." puts positive messages around roses and give them out in the city center or elsewhere in hospitals or whatever. So we actually came together, we put those labels together and put bows on and gave them out to people. Um, over time, I've had the honor of meeting with some amazing Shia scholars and I've learned so much from them. Um, and then there's been events organized such as the Hussein Summit, which I absolutely look forward to every year. Um, to the extent that I had to kind of drag our uh, pres uh, president, our chair, as I speak, to, to one of those events. And I think he was just in awe as to how amazing this event was. And this is an opportunity for us to invite not just the Muslim community and disregarding, you know, all these labels that we put on ourselves, Sunnisia, this and that, but let's come together and invite people um, to these um, events. And... Um, so I think overall, you know, in, in reflection, when we look at the um, Muslim community and the way that the media is demonizing the Muslim community, um, they're not looking at whether you're Shia, Sunni, Wahhabi or whatever. They're just looking at you as an individual. Um, and they think, you know, you're uh, uh, overall that you look like a Muslim and you, that's what it is. To the extent people don't know the difference where they are even attacking our Sikh brothers and sisters. So, you know, there's, these are opportunities for us to work together, look beyond these petty differences that we're looking at and um, come up with ways that we can actually collectively respond to the negativity that's out there. If anybody does, and I think once or twice somebody brought it up with me that, you know, but what about this? And I thought, what about it? This is just such a petty thing. Can you, we just look beyond it? And I think it just kind of makes people... Um, I think sometimes I can get away with that kind of language with uh, my brothers and sisters, but we need to often look beyond these petty differences and see ways that we can actually unite to make that positive change within not just the Muslim community, but the, the community at large, inclusive of all other religious and non-religious backgrounds. I'll end it here. Thank you so much, uh, Sister Mahmoud, and you know, some really fantastic uh, detail on some of the grassroots work you've been undertaking, um, and as well as working for Hope Not Hate, um, um, Sister Mahmoud has been uh, awarded a special community award uh, presented by Women of Cultures in Birmingham City Council, um, and she's currently the Birmingham branch coordinator for the ISB. Uh, and the West Midlands Programs Coordinator for the Faith and Belief Forum. So thank you so much again for the really, really interesting perspectives. And we look forward to hearing more about the work you're doing, inshallah. Um, so to hand over to our final speaker um, is uh, Rahim Zafar, who I'd say is a personal friend of mine, having been at St. Andrews University with him. Um, so he is the former president of our Islamic Society at the University of St. Andrews where he studied international relations, Arabic and French, and he's currently enrolled in traditional uh, Shia Hausa uh, studies and the co-founder of the Interfaith Exchange and a contributor to the Muslim vibe. Uh, thanks for joining us, Rahim. I'll hand over to you now. 
Thank you very much, Ali, and thank you very much to everyone else who has um, made some really interesting and important um, comments and shared some really great stories. Um, I want to talk today about Shia-Sunni dialogue and interactions within the university setting, and specifically within that of an Islamic society, sometimes called a Muslim Students Association, depending on where you are. And I actually wrote an article about this, which is available on the Muslim Vibe, entitled An Open Letter from a Shia Muslim MSA president, and you can check that out. It goes into more detail about what I'm going to, um, what I'm going to say now. So, over the next seven or so minutes, I'll be, well, because I don't have too much time to discuss, I'm going to be giving some suggestions based on my experience, as well as asking some questions, which hopefully our listeners, um, whether they're from ISOCs or from other organizations, can ponder on. And inshallah, the principles which um, you can derive hopefully can be applied to settings beyond just Islamic societies and the university environment. So firstly, I want to broach this question of student Islamic societies in Western countries and begin by asking, what is the purpose of an ISOC? You might say it's there for people to come together, be Muslim together, do Islamic things, but what does that really mean? When you walk into an Islamic society's fresher week event, for example, a pizza night, you'll be struck by the reality that is you have a huge diversity of people who are there. You have people who are just culturally Muslim. You have people who pray all the extra sunnah prayers. You have people who do Friday prayers. They come on Juma, but then they also go out um, and, and go out on the nightlife and so on. You have a huge range of people. You even have non-Muslims there. Right, you have some non-Muslims who are there, who are there just there for the food. Some of the Muslims are also just there for the food. Um, you have some people who are there because their friends are there, and you have other people who are other non-Muslims who might be interested in Islam and potentially converting. So the question is, how do you deal with this? It's very clear from just the first, um, you know, the first impression you get from walking into an ISOC event that the ISOC is not a mosque. That's something which is really important, something which you have to remember. People don't come there just to pray or to listen to the khutbah. People, um, you know, the ISOC committee, the presidents, they have to work out a way to deal with this. And they have to find a way to cater for the diverse range of people who come there. And they have to make sure that they don't push anyone away by being too harsh or by championing one ideology over another, whether that's a Shia ideology or a Sunni ideology, or whether there's other things um, which are more nuanced and precise um, within Sunni Islam or within Shia Islam. So the, the reason I want to talk, I, I want to frame the discussion in this context is because University, university campuses, I think we all are aware, are hardly the ideal Islamic environment. They promote a culture of hedonism in social life, and the actual intellectual culture um, often promotes ideas and philosophies which are directly contrary to core Islamic tenets and values. The ISOC is something of a sanctuary from that, and I think it's absolutely imperative for ISOC presidents and committees to bear that in mind and to realize the, the weight of responsibility on their shoulders, quite frankly. You could literally make or break someone's faith. I've seen plenty of people convert or become more religious or leave the faith even during my four years at university. If the president and um, committee keep that in mind, hopefully it will lead them then to ask the question, 
what do we do with this responsibility that's been given to us and how do we serve the community through the Islamic society, both the Muslim community and the wider non-Muslim community? So it's a broad question, obviously, and I won't be able to get into any depth at all today, but I want to obviously deal with the sectarian side of things and how to deal and how not to deal with sectarian um, questions. Like I said already, ISOCs have to be vigilant that they don't alienate anyone, either sections of the Muslim community or the non-Muslim university body. A person in their late teens and early 20s is, you know, there is a very formative period of their life. And it's absolutely essential that the ISOC doesn't, you know, it create, it doesn't do anything wrong and that it doesn't, you know, ruin someone's potential. And it also creates at the same time a healthy setting for intellectual and spiritual growth. So in terms of sectarian division specifically, we're often, as Ali alluded to in the introduction, we're often too hesitant or reluctant um, to open up the conversation. And in my humble opinion, the worst possible way of dealing with sectarian issues is by pretending that they don't exist. So I wrote in my, um, in my article on the Muslim vibe that sects exist, differences exist. And while the common ground is much vaster than the alleyways of differences that divide us, it is vital to enlighten those alleyways with knowledge so that we don't make incorrect assumptions about that which lies in the dark. As God mentions in Surah Yunus, most of them, most of the people only follow assumption, one. Surely assumption doesn't avail against the truth in the least. You're not going to benefit, in other words, from assuming things. God is encouraging you to learn and to seek knowledge. It's a central, you know, ethic of Islam, a central philosophy to read and to gain knowledge. So I believe it's it's absolutely necessary for ISOCs to be proactively addressing contentious issues so that they're able to equip their members with knowledge that those people aren't very likely to get in non-academic environment when they leave university. Mosques have, uh, have done and they will always continue to provide explanations of certain historical differences and theological divisions in a biased way. And to be fair, that's the, they have the absolute right to do so. I wouldn't expect anything else from my mosque, right? They have absolutely every right to propagate their beliefs. But um, it's an, like I say, it's an Islamic principle and also something which we should strive to do at university, that in university you're taught to, to engage with and to grapple with really difficult ideas, new ideas. So if the ISOC isn't doing that, then the ISOC is really letting its people down. I'm gonna, the, I'm gonna skip to the last section because I don't have too much time left. And I'm just gonna talk about a couple of really simple things that I have done in my time as president and before president. So um, to make basically ISOC somewhat Shia friendly, um, we have this little thing, um, some of you guys might have seen, it's a, it's a torba, it's the thing that Shias pray on when they, um, do, their, when they do their salah. And it's very, it's, I'm not going to go into an explanation of why we have it, but saying very simply on the um, ISOC Facebook page description that in the prayer room there are torbas available for people who require it. It's basically a way of signaling that this is a Shia safe space. You, you can come here, you won't be kicked out, your torbas won't be thrown into the bin, as has happened in certain Islamic societies. Other things I've done is I've given annual talks about Karbala. And, you know, whenever I've had the opportunity in normal discussions, bring in 
ethical teachings or du'as which exist in Shia literature. Um, last point, Ali, don't worry, I'm, fin I'm just finishing off now. Um, that exist in Shia literature which, through which I believe people can really benefit in their own personal lives, whether it's ethical teachings or you know, supplications. One of those teachings is um, a saying by Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq the sixth Imam, um, where he says, preach your religion in a way that does not require the use of your tongue. I know Ali really likes this um, thing as well. And it's one of my favorite ones and one of the reasons for which I really tried my best to push for social events, charity events, outreach events, so that the Muslims, the Shia and the Sunni people in the society can really develop a true genuine friendship and brotherhood and both outreach to other people but develop that relationship between themselves because while academic discussion is vital and absolutely necessary on its own it will never be able to create true unity you need these social events you need people to working together i'm going to finish there thank you for thank you for letting me go over a bit oh no no problem apologies to press you there was so really enjoying listening to that but yeah um and you know, you know the perspectives that you've given on, on ISOCs are fantastic. And thank you so much uh, again, Rahim, for, for joining the event today. Uh, we've got time just for a couple of questions. Um, and we've had a few comments. So apologies if we're not able to ask a question this time around. Um, I'd like to start by asking the first question to um, Sister Mathia uh, and Uncle Dewar. Uh, and the question is, if the political differences between the companions are now in the distant past, would it be best for relations if we didn't talk about them anymore? So I'd like just keep, try and keep your answers as short as possible, please. Mahdia, do you want to go first? Yeah, 100% um, yeah, it would, but unfortunately people aren't quite over it yet. So at this point, I think it's still better if we do have this dialogue so that we can begin to understand that the companions and the family themselves did actually continue and move forward. So we need to still have that dialogue to make that clear that that's actually what happened. Within about six months, Imam Ali dropped his claim to, not dropped his claim, but he wasn't fighting for Khilafat anymore. And he was working with the Caliphs to, on guidance on how to rule the Muslim Ummah. So clearly unity was more important to both of these groups and that should be more important to us as well. Yeah, I would, I would say that I think, as, as has already been mentioned, ignoring the problems doesn't necessarily help us uh, in, in the way that we might think they do. So because I think the, the, with, with any groupings like this, with any of these sectarian tensions, whether they exist at, at religious level, interreligious level or within a religion, there's so much myth about the differences that simply ignoring them can just put them in a box and that can be unhealth unhealthy. So I think what I would say is let's come together on the things that we agree. And we know that they are the majority. The vast majority of our theology, our, even our fiqh and so on, there's huge overlaps. Let's come together on the things that are already in common. And the things where there are differences and where are the, there are some disagreements, let's keep talking about them in respectful terms. And as we discuss them and talk about them, we will shed new light on those issues. We may understand them better. We may agree to disagree. We may even find some way of reconciling some of those issues. Thank you very much. Um, and just kind of the final uh, question that I'm gonna ask, and that's gonna be to um, Sister Mahmouda and Rahim. Um, just linking in a little bit with what Rahim uh, was talking about. So question, uh, the question to as follows. So kind of what experiences do Shia students have 
uh, with ISOCs and how can uh, student ISOCs help with intrafaith dialogue? So it depends really on the university you're at. Some universities are very Shia friendly, um, for lack of better phrase. In other universities, there are Shia societies called Ahlul Bayt societies, but there are other names as well, depending on where you are. I really think it depends on the context. The reason I managed to become president wasn't because I'm an amazing, you know, project manager or a great Muslim. It's because of the context of St. Andrews. There were hardly any Muslims in the university. And because of that, um, and because I, you know, I put in a fair bit of effort in the, in the uh, events that the ISOC held, I managed to, you know, I managed to fight my way to the top, um, so to speak. But ways that, um, societies, um, ISOCs can help Shias integrate, I suppose is by one way, one thing, there's some really good examples in Edinburgh ISOC where there used to be a separate Shia society, but then it was dissolved by a friend of mine in his last year. And now there are Shias and Sunnis together in Edinburgh ISOC committee holding events. They invite, um, they had a really great event earlier just before lockdown stroke um, with a really prominent Shia speaker and a really prominent Sunni speaker where they discuss similarities and differences New York University MSA is also a brilliant example. They have a dedicated Ahlul Bayt chair, um, a Shia Muslim from the community who, um, from the university body, who you know really makes sure that Shia point of view is represented. They even hold majalis like the um, Muharram commemoration in ISOC um, in ISOC rooms. So it's there's there's a lot of things you can do, but I think inviting Shia speakers is something which will definitely make it seem clear that you're not anti-Shia. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, Sister Mahmouda, if you'd like to add on to anything? Um, I think I don't have much experience in terms of um, university context, but I think with the experience I've had through my son who's at university, I think you're all at, at that prime of your age where you think you're right. And then, you know, there's also lots of discord that people are kind of prepared for and to kind of prove themselves. And I just feel that maybe there's a need for some elders, um, you know, some guidance, some kind of wisdom that could be brought in from um, those people who have had more experience, because from the experience I've had in terms of community organizing and working at the grassroots level, um, there's that need there because there's always, you know, some little bits that come up that petty things that people might kind of bring up. And then there's, you need another person to calm things down think, look, in the bigger context, this is nothing, it's fine, it's okay. So I think from the experience that I've had, and I think, you know, perhaps on top of what Rahim has said, um, that perhaps we need some involvement from some people who are a bit older, who have got more, a broader picture of um, looking beyond the differences and more looking at unity rather than those differences. Thank you so much. Um, and I'd just like to say again, to all of our uh, speakers today, um, it's been a really interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Um, and I hope that everybody who's tuned in today has learned something new. And we hope that this is the first of many discussions on this particular issue, and that the dialogue that we've created today can, can, can spread um, in great quantity in the future um, amongst Islamic societies and other communal organizations. So thank you once again, and thank you to all the attendees who've tuned in.